Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, your host for this episode. Today I'm speaking with Jessie Singer about her new book, There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price, published in February of 2022 by Simon & Schuster. Jessie Singer is a journalist whose writing appears in The Washington Post, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, The Village Voice, The All, New York Magazine, The Guardian, and elsewhere. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I loved reading your book. And to begin, would you tell us something about yourself and your background, and particularly how you became interested in the topic of accidents or no accidents? Thank you. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it's not a happy story how I came to this topic. Um, It started for me in 2006 when my best friend uh, was killed in a bike crash in New York City. It was, it was and remains the worst day of my life. And a year after his killing, I was in a courtroom where the driver who, uh, who killed him uh, was being sentenced to prison. Now that man was drunk and speeding and driving on the sidewalk. Um, But when he was asked to address the courtroom, he referred to um, the the crash as this accident that happened. Uh, And I remember, I wasn't really turned into the complications of the word accident at the time, but I remember thinking, that's a weird way to put it. You know, there was a a lot of, there's a lot of actions that led um, to Eric's death, and uh, it, it seemed like such an odd construction. Um, this sort of uh, idea that he wasn't even there; it was just something that happened. Um, and I think the most important point to note is that not much was done after Eric was killed um, to, you know, change what the street looked like where he was killed or anything else. This man was sent to prison, and that was the end of the story. Um, what got me started on writing this book would happen 11 years later. After Eric's death, um, I left a career in investigative journalism and moved into political advocacy in hopes of preventing what had happened to, um, to my friend from happening ever again. And uh, it was in that work, 11 years later, that I would get a phone call from one of my colleagues. And you know, on the phone, they said, you know, Jesse, there was a, a crash on the same street where Eric was killed. It looks like it might have been intentional. Um, and I remember, I remember my heart sank, and 
as the news would come out, we would find out that this was a, a vehicular terrorist attack um, that uh, killed eight people and severely injured 11, um, wherein a man, not by accident, but with murderous intentions, rented a truck and drove down the same sidewalk where my friend was killed. And it was the exact same route, this person who was killing with intention. Um, and I remember being so crestfallen that this thing that seemed so preventable um, had happened again, even in a, in a different way. A few months after that, the city and state of New York would get together and they would protect every intersection where the road crossed this bike path where my friend was killed and where this terrorist attack had occurred. And for me, it was exact proof that what had happened to my friend was totally preventable, um, except nothing was done because what had happened to my friend was considered an accident. Uh, and when someone else killed there in the same spot, following the same route with intention, only then um, did we act to prevent it from happening again. Hmm. That does sound like a really painful experience for you. And I see how it would make you ponder the meaning of the word accident. So I wonder if you could uh, start telling us more by setting out a definition of the term accident. What does it mean when it's used in various contexts? And for instance, what counts as an accident in official data? And it's also a term that you say in the book that you have a, a really strong aversion to. So what does the term accident signify to you? It's a great question. And I'd like to preface it by saying that in my normal day-to-day -day life, I don't say the word accident ever. It is outside my vocabulary. And in writing the book, I really agonized over whether or not to use it and how to use it. Um, but I don't think you can investigate a phenomena without naming it. So what I tried to do in the book was to overuse it um, and, because I wanted people to come away hyper aware, um, catching every instance of it. Um, but going forward, I'm going to use the word accident. So if you could please imagine my air quotes, I would be grateful. So accident is a complicated word because by definition, it has two definitions. Uh, those two definitions contradict. So an accident is a random event, which is to say something unpredictable. An accident is also defined as a harmful event, which of course is a predictable outcome. So an accident is at once allegedly unpredictable and having an outcome predicted by definition. Um, and it's kind of from that contradictory notion that uh, much of the strangeness of how we deal with these harms arises. In the data, what we are talking about and what the U.S. Centers for Disease Control defines um, as the accidental is unintentional injury. So not violence and not diseases. Um, but that definition, unintentional injury, is a huge one, um, ranging from very common accidents like uh, drug, accidental drug poisoning, like a drug overdose, 
um, traffic accidents, accidental falls. Um, those are the three most common causes of uh, accidental or unintentional injury death in the U.S. Um, but this also includes things like fires and drownings, chokings, um, and, and very rare forms of unintentional injury death, freezing to death by accident, starving to death by accident, being bitten by an animal by accident. Um, and so we're talking about a vast realm of our interactions with the built environment, um, you know, with injury in our homes, on our roads, and in our workplaces. Um, my aversion to the term is many, but I think if I was going to uh, look at the most specific point, it would be that if you look at this vast world of unintentional injury and you examine who dies, despite the fact that accidents are supposed to be random and unpredictable, there's nothing random or unpredictable about who dies by accident in the United States. Accidental death is largely divided along race and class lines, especially when you look at accidents of our built environment, accidental fires, traffic accidents, accidental overdoses, um, because those are accidents when the conditions that we're exposed to differ. When policy and infrastructure decides who lives and dies because we don't all have the same conditions in our homes and in our roads and in our workplaces. Um, and that leads to wildly unequal rates of accidental death. So I think at, at the core of my aversion is that we call these things random by definition and by data, they are not random at all. It's this magic word that disguises wild inequity. Yeah, and that's interesting because there are connotations that an individual has when they use the word accident, uh, which you bring up later that, well, it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. So in a sense, it doesn't count uh, or I'm not responsible for it. And you you go into that more. In, so I wanted to cover another sort of definition which is, um, would you explain, there's a, a couple of, uh, I sort of, I'm not sure how to, sort of iconic figures that would appear in the book, the jaywalker and the nut behind the wheel. Uh, and they keep reappearing through the book. Would you explain who they are and how they came to be? Absolutely. So in the early 1900s in the US, there was a massive rise in traffic fatalities. I mean, Simply put, the automobile was popularized and these places that never had big steel, fast moving machines um, were suddenly full of big steel, fast moving machines. And people were outraged by the rise in traffic fatalities. And two terms arise sort of in response to that outrage. The jaywalker, which um, if you don't know it, a J is a word for like a hillbilly or a rube. Um, so the jaywalker was someone who walked like a country bumpkin and didn't understand how city streets work. Um, and then the nut behind the wheel was a fun play on words. Um, the idea being that uh, the car is perfectly safe. All the nuts and bolts of a car are perfectly safe, except for the nut behind the wheel being the driver. And so these two terms were popularized by automakers during this massive rise in traffic fatalities. And the message they sent 
was that the cause of people dying in traffic crashes was not that these giant, fast-moving steel machines were inherently dangerous, but rather traffic fatalities were a problem of bad drivers and bad walkers. And it says that this simple idea of a car, a giant, fast steel machine moving around fragile human bodies is not why people die in crashes. Rather, it's the nut behind the wheel and the jaywalker. It's, it's these human error figures. And this is an interesting thing that you see throughout accidental death and throughout history. You see it in the workplace. You see it on the roads. You see it when people die in fires in their homes. And it's a focus on the last thing that went wrong the human error, the mistake, uh, the person closest to the so-called accident um, and a way of pointing a finger at them. So that the problem isn't the dangerous condition of big steel machines that can go fast moving through city streets. Rather, it's a problem of jaywalkers and nuts behind the wheel of accident prone workers, um, of these sort of figureheads of human error, of people at fault. And it's all a way of distracting and uh, shifting our focus away from these inherently dangerous conditions. Hmm. And I think that's cognitively an, a natural place for the human mind to go to, is to say, oh, what, what did I do? What was the last thing I did? What could I have done differently? So that's something that the big corporations can easily take advantage of. And do you, you say that accidents are profitable for corporate America. And for instance, the Ford Automobile Company or another one. So how are accidents actually profitable for corporate America? Accidents are profitable for corporate America because accidents don't have a cost. Um, you know, a lack of regulation, uh, safety regulations that would protect us um, from the ways corporations can harm us. Um, that lack of regulation means there's no extra cost in product construction that would make vehicles safer. And so you can see an example of that in, um, in the earliest days of safety innovations for automobiles, like when the US government first started to regulate seat belts and um, shatterproof glass in, in vehicles, and automakers resisted it mightily because it would cost them more to produce that car, that car that wouldn't kill you in an accident. Um, and so so the lack of regulation is one way that uh, accidents are profitable for corporate America. Um, and another is, uh, you know, is tort reform, that there's no cost after people die because it's very hard to sue corporations for having harmed you. And I think, you know, an important thing to note is the way this works is that blame is very psychologically satisfying, as you pointed out. Finding a single person on which to rest these tragedies makes us feel better. Um, and corporations take advantage of that. Um, they are urged to blame, are urged to focus on the last thing. And that leads to letting corporations and governments off the hook for their you know, moral and ethical responsibility to protect us. An interesting example of this happened in New York City uh, a few weeks ago. There was a horrible apartment fire in the Bronx, um, and I think 17 people were killed in this fire. And after the fire, the mayor, you know, he got on TV and he said, um, this accident 
ductile fire was caused by someone leaving their space heater on and someone who didn't close the door as they ran um, from this fire. So the fire spread outside of the apartment. But in New York City, apartment buildings are legally required to be heated and self-closing doors that automatically you know, close the fire into one apartment are also legally required. And so while the mayor was pointing us to say, let's look at the last person who made a mistake here, there was actually a corporate landlord who was failing to adequately heat an apartment. So people were relying on supplemental heat and was failing to maintain the legally required self-closing doors. And we can only assume that that landlord was doing that because it was profitable um, to not heat the apartment building properly, to push those costs onto people's electric bills and the supplemental heat they'd needed, and to not maintain their self-closing doors. And so there was no cost to that you know, corporate landlord in that scenario. And then after the accident, uh, you know, all the blame was pointed on the last people who may or may not have made a mistake. And that does really deflect the blame. And I remember reading about that in the New York Times. And uh, your mind then does go to, you know, why wouldn't somebody do this? Why wouldn't somebody do that? Rather than why wouldn't the landlords, um, why wouldn't the city do this or that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a strong urge. I understand why we blame the last person who made a mistake. It makes us feel better. But there are so many ways that we can be protected instead from our mistakes. And I, I think that's fires are a great example of understanding this. So um, an adequately heated building or a self-closing door or say a sprinkler system, none of these things prevent fires. They don't prevent people from making mistakes. They protect people after a mistake. The seatbelt and the airbag are the same thing. That doesn't prevent your car from crashing. It protects you if you make a mistake. And we often see corporations refusing to and governments failing to hold corporations accountable for protecting us from our mistakes in all of these ways that we know how to. We know how to protect people. The, the innovation exists. It's just a cost that we're not paying. So I want to jump to a story that has to do with um, innovations to protect people in case of error. And this is an extraordinary story of a man named Hugh DeHaven, who had a miraculous fall. And then he did subsequent research into falling. Would you tell us about him and his story? Yeah, I love Hugh DeHaven. He, he, he's a remarkable man. And he's, he's known as the father of injury prevention. And that, that gets to what I was talking about. Not preventing mistakes, not preventing people from errors, but preventing them from being injured when they do. And his story begins during World War I. He was training to be a pilot in Texas and was running exercises with another plane. Both planes crashed and fell hundreds of feet out of the air and smashed into the ground. Everyone else on board both planes died. Hugh DeHaven survived. Um, he ruptured a bunch of his organs, but he survived. And he was in the hospital, slowly healing. And he, he couldn't stop thinking about this question. Why did I survive and everyone else died? And when he got out of the hospital, he went and examined the wreckages of these planes. And he, he found that all of his injuries correlated with the lap belt that he was wearing, the seat, lap seat belt. 
um, and the latch on it, which had dug into his, his abdomen when he crashed. He was the only one of all these pilots wearing a seatbelt. And so what he started to figure out was that what he had been packaged in mattered as he fell. And he invented this idea of the second collision, which is to say, when he fell to the ground in his plane, he and his plane collided with the ground. But that was it, because he was belted to his seat. The other people in the other planes fell to the ground and then crashed into the earth and then ricocheted into other parts of the plane, the second collision. And so Hugh Haven started to research how much the second collision mattered and also how he had survived, because essentially he had fallen a great deal and experienced a huge amount of deceleration. And so he started to do two series of experiments. One was taking eggs and dropping them on from his you know, kitchen counter onto the floor, onto various mats of foam and rubber, um, seeing what they could survive because an egg is not so different than a head, right? So, and he wondered, you know, we move eggs all around the country. How do they not all crack? We, we put them on shelves, we put them on trucks, you know? And what he figured out was that an egg, not unlike a brain, properly packaged, could survive quite a bit of impact. And he ended up finding out that, you know, an egg could be dropped from 100 feet onto a three-inch piece of rubber and survive that initial impact. Uh, he also began collecting stories of other miraculous survivals like his, people who jumped out of a six-story window and survived. And he would calculate their falling rate based on their weight and how far they fell and how where they landed gave away with impact or failed to and how that helped them survive. And essentially he found that the human body can withstand massive deceleration when properly packaged. And so what comes out of that initial research by Hugh DeHaven is that for the first time we started to make planes so they crashed well. Uh, it was the invention of the idea of crashworthiness, that the package you're in when, uh, when something goes wrong will dictate your survival. And so before, before Hugh DeHaven, there was no concept that the machine you were in mattered to your survival. Uh, accidental death was considered uh, the matter of the nut behind the wheel, you know, or the jaywalker, not uh, the package you were in and how that would have dictated your survival. And uh, after Hugh DeHaven's plane research, he um, would years later witness uh, a traffic crash and he saw that the driver died because they were, um, their skull was pierced by a sharp dashboard knot. And to him, this seemed like really clear causality. And so he went about uh, doing a similar research of traffic crashes. And he teamed up with the um, a state police department and collected photos from crash scenes of the injuries in the aftermath. And he created this list of the most dangerous parts of a car steering columns that don't collapse on impact, um, glass that shatters into the car, those sharp dashboard knobs. And he presented them to automakers and said, hey, I figured this out. 
I, I, I've got the most, this is why people are dying in your cars. It's not the nut behind the wheel. Um, even if the, the person behind the wheel is nuts, you could save lives by, by, by softening the blow of these various parts, you know, padded dashboards, collapsible steering columns, seat belts that keep you from smashing into the dash, um, glass that holds together, just cracks and doesn't shatter. And he presented this to automakers and he waited for them to do something. And it was just crickets. It was crickets for 10 years. Automakers didn't act, um, which is an interesting thing about Hugh DeHaven as the father of injury research. You know, he, he, he figured out why we got hurt and he presented solutions, but nothing was done. Um, and it took um, the um, intervention of Ralph Nader with his book, Unsafe at Any Speed and his congressional testimony exposing this information to the general population and the general population getting angry about it to create the first automobile regulations to force these ideas that Hugh DeHaven had presented a decade earlier into, um, you know, into the corporate rules, into the requirements for how we build cars. Um, so it's an interesting tension there. It, it's not just figuring out how to prevent injury-related death in these so-called accidents. Um, it is forcing corporations to act, to prevent, you know, to protect us in all the ways they know how, thanks to people like you to Haven. Hmm. And I guess, and especially as an activist, you would focus on this. You certainly can get people incensed about the cause of accidents, but you, you tell a story early on about vehicular accidents uh, early in the 20th century in New York City, I believe, where uh, the people on the street got out and, and chased, ran down a man who'd been driving a truck who hit and killed a little boy. Uh, and they held that individual completely responsible. So certainly people are capable of being enraged. They have to know what to be enraged about. Is Would you agree? I, I think that's a really good point. You know, especially considering all of our urge to blame the individual, as we talked about, that like, Finding that one bad guy, whether it's the truck driver who killed a child um, or the jaywalker who walked out in the street, I would argue it's the same story and that both are equally unhelpful to preventing accidental death. If we're not seeing the larger system at play, the ways that we could be protected, then, then we're losing the, the battle. The most important thing I could tell people about accidental death is if you've found one person to blame, even if they're a real bad guy, even if you really don't like them, you've lost because there is no path to prevention in blaming an individual, in punishing an individual. The same accident's going to keep happening again and again. So I want to bring up another big corporation that should certainly be held responsible. And I have long been haunted by the Exxon Valdez disaster as it occurred, I think, when I was an uh, environmental studies student. And in chapter three of your book, Scale, you discuss large-scale accidents, including the Valdez, and you use this really evocative term, oil response theater, which is when they're cleaning up the birds, but not really doing much good by cleaning the poor birds, most of which died anyway. Uh, how is this this oil response theater and the, the response by Exxon, how is that an example of how powerful corporations respond to these, and I'm using air quotes, accidents? 
the Valdez is such a haunting uh, so-called accident. Uh, one thing that really shocked me in that one was the notion of how tricky scale is for us. You know, Exxon Valdez, it happened so long ago. We don't think about it anymore. But the otter population in, um, in the sound in Alaska, where the oil was spilled, just recovered. It took 25 years. It took 25 years for the population to recover. This, this accident we don't think about. And so large-scale accidents like the Exxon Valdez are pretty, quote-unquote, rare. They don't happen often. But their effects are so outsized that they're beyond our comprehension. And I think that's something that really benefits corporations um, like Exxon. Now, I want to note, little accidents, overdoses, traffic crashes, falls, fires, that's most of the way that we die accidental death. We die in ones and twos, 100 times a day, every day. Um, and in those little accidents, blame works. Focusing on the last thing works. Blaming the jaywalker and the nut behind the wheel and the accident-prone worker is really effective in those little accidents. But that narrative is too simple for these big, large-scale, massively consequential accidents. They're, they're just too big to rest on one mistake. We don't comprehend that as enough. And so what happens to distract us after these large-scale accidents is that corporations push a narrative that what happened was not so bad. And you see this really strongly in um, what I call this oil spill response theater. You see it in assertions about how much of the oil was cleaned up. You see it in footage of volunteers in gloves and rubber suits and um, birds, you know, carried around in medical basins and you know, soap and the, the picking up of the oily sand. Um, there's just a whole shtick of we're fixing this. And it's important to note that the data shows it doesn't fix it. Uh, none of the major oil spills, do they ever get more than a quarter of the oil physically cleaned up out of the water? I, I think at most, that was the best number I've seen, even in the most contained oil spills. Also, the birds still die. The turtles still die. There's massive unknown effects on the, the fisheries um, because it's so hard to measure fish populations. And that doesn't even consider the, um, the egg populations, the, the phytoplankton. We don't know massive amounts of information about how much damage is being called and caused. And everything we do know is awful. But the last story we're told after an oil spill is that this is being cleaned up. and Look at all these people with their rubber gloves and their soap ready to clean it up. So that narrative sticks in our heads that there's something to be done about this, that this is being fixed. And that cushions the blow of these large scale accidents in our brains so that it seems like at the very end, we can feel a little better about it. Uh, we can have a happy narrative, uh, even though there's nothing happy here. We're talking about a 25-year otter population recovery. Um, we're talking about massive and consequential environmental destruction. Hmm. I remember uh, it was some years after the Exxon Valdez going to SeaWorld in San Diego, which, by the way, I, I wouldn't go to anymore. But anyway, at that time in my life, I went to SeaWorld in San Diego, and there was a, an exhibit, and it was sponsored by Exxon. And in it, they talked about 
how they had completely cleaned up the Valdez disaster and the sound was now clean and they had pictures of it. And it, that was the last time I went to SeaWorld. Wow. Uh, notably, too, in Alaska, in Seward, Alaska, there is a gorgeous uh, state-of-the-art aquarium that also contains a marine rehabilitation center. And it was paid for uh, with the Exxon Valdez settlement money. Um, this place to, uh, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, bring some uh, otters back to life should the same accident happen again. And in so many cases, of course, the ocean is large. We can't see into it. It's a sort of out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. We can't see it. It doesn't, you know, the damage isn't there. But that may happen in other ways in society too, as you point out. So I wanted to get into drugs because uh, you write about how many accidental overdoses there are. And I know that some people would think, huh, you know, if somebody's doing drugs, if somebody overuses drugs, is that really an accident? So um, would you explain to us how accidental overdose of drugs by an adult is actually similar to a car accident? Sure. And I understand that this is an intuitive and I wanted to place an emphasis on overdose, not only because it's the most common cause of accidental death in the US, but also because I do think it makes, you know, there, there's a huge amount of stigmatization around drug use that makes people squeamish. It makes people really uh, fall back on that blaming the last person who made a mistake. But accidents are a matter of exposure to dangerous conditions. Uh, the risk of how many dangerous ex conditions you or I are exposed to. COVID actually has taught us a lot about this, that you know, one way to control your exposure to COVID as a dangerous condition is to wear a mask. Another way is to stay home. But if you have to go to work, then that risk is out of your control. Um, and so like a mask is one way to control your risk exposure and not going to work is another way. And those things layer if you, you know, have more exposures, you're more likely to get sick or to be harmed in the case of an accident. And so if we see accidents as all accidents, as a matter of how people are exposed to a series of dangerous conditions, how risks stack up for different people, and how that decides the likelihood and degree of harm, then we can see there's a direct relationship between whether or not you die in a car accident and whether or not a person dies in an, an accidental drug poisoning or an overdose. For example, you're more likely to die in a car accident if you drive an old car. You're also more likely to uh, die in a car accident if you live in an impoverished place. And you're also more likely to die in a car accident if the place where you live spends more money on the police than they do on road repair. And then of course, if you live in a place where you need to walk, you're more likely to be struck by a car. Each of those is a dangerous condition. And if you're only exposed to one, you're at less risk than a person who's exposed to all five. The same layered dangerous conditions, the same stacked risks exist for drug use. You're more likely to die of an overdose if you lack access to medical care, if you lack access to naloxone. 
And so those are risks that stack up that define your likelihood of death. And I think especially with drug use, you know, people might be saying, yeah, but just don't use drugs. And what I want people to focus on is the prevention of harm. Rather than judging that mistake, trying to place blame to make ourselves feel better, I want people to say, how can we prevent people from dying of an overdose? Because preventing people from dying of an overdose is not complicated. We have opioid reversal drugs that work fantastically, uh, but people don't have access to them. Um, we restrict their use. We make them extremely expensive. And that all that disregards all this stigma and judgment that we put on people who use drugs um, and whether or not they can, you know, just feel comfortable accessing them. But just like in the car accident, just like in the overdose accident, in, in both cases, blame falls to the last person who made a mistake. The so-called addict who took too many drugs, the so-called nut behind the wheel. And neither of those narratives prevent the harm from recurring. And this is why accidental death repeats, even though we have naloxone, even though we have crash prevention technology, we put the blame on the last person who made a mistake and we, prevent, we pretend that they should have just been perfect. They should have just done better. They should have just made better decisions. And that makes us feel better. And it leaves all of the dangerous conditions in place that set this up to happen again. And is that what you've just described about the layers of risk? Is that what you call the, the Swiss cheese analogy, which comes up throughout the book? Uh, and would you say a little more about that? Absolutely. Um, the Swiss cheese analogy is a, a really interesting way of understanding how where risk exposure happens and how uh, dangerous conditions line up. And it comes out of an era of really big systemic failures, these catastrophic accidents like the Exxon Valdez, the Three Mile Island meltdown. Um, and a psychologist named James Reason convened this concept of how to understand essentially how things go wrong in these big, large-scale accidents. And so he asks us to imagine a stack of Swiss cheese. And each slice of Swiss cheese is a safety system, a warning light or um, an automatic valve that opens or closes. And because it's Swiss cheese, it has holes in it. Each safety system has some small way it could fail. That's the holes. But because it's a stack of Swiss cheese, the holes don't all line up, right? The holes are random. And Reason's theory with the Swiss cheese model was that the way these big, large-scale accidents happen is that when a failure gets through the hole in one safety system and it just happens that the holes in the other safety systems line up, that doesn't always occur. A lot of times there's a hole in one safety system and it smacks right into the next slice of Swiss cheese and disaster is averted. Um, but when these big accidents happen, the theory was that it was that these little kind of impossible to predict failures had all happened to line up. Um, that these layered safety systems and layered risks allowed failure to eke through. Um, something I try and do in my book is to take the Swiss cheese model and apply it outside the four walls of a factory or a nuclear reactor. You know, reason intended it for these closed systems and these very tangible um, 
dangerous conditions and safety systems. But in my research, I note this deep uh, connection between our social systems and accidental death, um, the ways that um, people of color and people living in poverty are much more likely to die by accident. And so one thing I ask the readers is to see how you can apply this idea of the Swiss cheese model, this idea of safety systems and holes where dangerous uh, conditions sneak through um, to things much larger than a factory or a nuclear power plant. Um, you know, we were talking about layered risk. If you drive an old car, you're more at risk. If you live in a place with a lot of old cars, you're more at risk. If the roads are old where you live, those are, those are three holes in your own personal slices of Swiss cheese. And if you've got all three, that danger is more likely to line up for you. Um, and so if we apply the Swiss cheese model to include our social systems, to include the way that race dictates the, safe, the safety of your apartment um, and the apartment you have access to, the way the you know, collapsing of the social safety net affects what work you can take um, and how dangerous the work you take is and what you can afford to do and not do. Um, we can see how accidents, these systems, accidents are, are actually uh, visible in much larger systems. Here's a, here's a good example. So the Permian Basin in Texas, um, you know, was, is the site of like a massive new energy market in the United States um, where we are, uh, you know, extracting oil. And there's all of a sudden, you know, fracking technology has led us to see a lot more oil there. And so there's been all this money poured in and all this energy poured into what was like a few rural counties in Texas. And so when the energy market in the Permian Basin started to grow, there was a rise in work accidents. Now, this is a pretty predictable hole in the Swiss cheese because, of course, oil drilling is dangerous work. Fracking is dangerous work. Of course, works accidents would rise. But other types of accidental death also followed. Uh, overdoses rose in the county. Traffic accidents rose in the county. And so if we see the highway system in rural Texas as, uh, you know, as a slice of Swiss cheese and the availability of medical care for gig workers doing hard uh, oil uh, you know, fracking labor, um, and their lack of access to medical care and how that might relate to whether or not they need drugs to manage their pain, we can see how uh, this rising energy market um, allows through accidents, not just work accidents, but an increase in overdoses, an increase in traffic accidents, um, that the holes in those social systems um, remain and line up. It's a complicated concept, but I think it allows us to stop looking at the last person who made a mistake and see the many layers of prevention, of safety that we could, uh, we could put in between us and our mistakes and put in between us and harm. It sounds like a lot of restructuring will need to occur. And you cite so many different instances. The book cites a lot of different numbers, proportions, percentages, dollars, rates, uh, I wonder, are there any of those numbers that stand out to you as particularly abhorrent? Yes. And I want to note that th this is really what drove me to write a book. I was, I was shocked and upset when that terrorist attack occurred, that 
prove that my best friend's death could have been prevented. But when I started to do the research um, into how we die by accident in the United States, I was, I was disgusted at what I found because it was so clear cut that race and income divide, defined who died by accident in the US. Um, and one, one type of accidental death I like to point out is choking which is pretty much has nothing to do with policy or infrastructure. Uh, there's, there's, there's not much that we could do to change how people choke to death. And as a result, choking deaths across the country are pretty much identical. Um, you know, there's no racial differences. There's no, you know, location differences. Um, and what that tells me is that the vast majority of ways we die by accident, um, which is not choking, choking is a very small number, um, are entirely based on what we afford people to protect themselves. Um, uh, these like race and income-based differences that you see in accidental death are all in the sort of accidents that are wholly preventable if only we had resources to protect people. Uh, for example, indigenous people are killed in traffic crashes at more than twice the rate of white people. Black people are killed in accidental fires at more than twice the rate of white people. People in West Virginia die by accident at more than twice the rate of people just across the state line in Virginia. These are, to me, a, a testament to the fact that what we do as a country to protect people is not at all equal. Uh, money and access to power can buy you access to safety. Um, and for everyone else, uh, it's an incredibly dangerous free-for-all. And so one of the obstacles, of course, is convincing people that there is something that needs to be rectified. And one of the obstacles that you cite is something called the just world fallacy. Would you talk about that? Yeah, uh, I absolutely would. And I think, let me talk a little bit more about uh, Virginia and West Virginia, because I think it'll help us understand this. So when we look at these race and economically divided modes of accidental death, what we're seeing is layers of risk exposure that are different depending if you're white or black, if you live in Virginia or West Virginia. Um, so a little bit of accident risk is about what we do, that last person who made a mistake, but the vast majority of it is what we're exposed to. And we are not at all exposed to the same conditions. For example, What's the difference between Virginia and West Virginia? It's the poverty rate. It's the amount of money that each state has and is spending to protect its citizens. Um, and so this is where the just world comes. Sorry, the just world fallacy comes in. The just world fallacy is the belief that the world is just. You'll note fallacy is in there. The world is not just. Uh, the world is not fair. Uh, the just world fallacy is the comforting but inaccurate belief that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so if you believe that, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, then you believe that people in West Virginia die by accident because they're bad people. And I think, again, you know, West Virginia, a lot of the um, accidental death rate is driven by the opioid overdose crisis. And so if you look at that, then you might say, oh, all those people are dying by accident in West Virginia because they're bad people. They're, they're drug users. To which I would say, none of those people need to die if we gave them all naloxone. 
it would arrest all of their overdoses and they would survive. So the just world fallacy is this thing that lets us feel better about accidental death um, by blaming the last person who made a mistake, the last thing that happened. And if that's already a person we're predisposed not to like um, because of their economic status, because of their race, because of um, their drug use, then it is exacerbated all the more. And it's important to note, not everyone believes in the just world fallacy, um, but it's about half the country. Um, however, if you, if you look at the numbers, uh, belief in a, in a just world is much higher among certain groups of people. Uh, political conservatives, people with a tendency towards authoritarianism, and uh, people who are very religious all sort of uh, uh, test highest in this belief that the world is just bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, um, and that that sort of defines why people die by accident or don't. Even though we have so much knowledge that accidental death is just a matter of cushioning the blow, of putting a pillow between us and our mistakes, of the simple injury prevention that Hugh DeHaven first discovered. Yeah, and so that's um, that's a good example of West Virginia uh, of what you've called spatial inequality uh, and other kinds of inequality. And I wanted to move on now. So you, you mentioned putting a cushion between the person and uh, the catastrophe about to occur. In that vein, why are bicycle helmets and fall prevention rules in hospitals not as useful as we might think. Bicycle helmets can be useful in some circumstances. Uh, I think they're an interesting example because they are uh, they are overused in their in their injury prevention pro potential. Um, in the sense that most bicycle helmet manufacturers will tell you that bicycle helmets cannot protect you from getting hit by a car. Now, if you fall off your bike on a rural road and you bump your head on the ground, a bicycle helmet will help you. If you get run over by a truck, no, sorry, it's not going to work. But what I think is important to point out and the relationship between like bicycle helmets and fall prevention is rules and laws about these issues. Uh, so we see in bicycle helmets, we see laws requiring bicycle helmet use. And that's what I really think is useful. Um, and I also, you also see fall prevention rules in hospitals. And essentially what these two um, concepts say is that these things are required and therefore they are massively overemphasized in their ability to protect people. Um, and inherent in this is kind of a, a misconstruction of the problem that if we foc on the, focus on the last person who made a mistake, then we've already lost the ability of prevention. So bicycle helmets are often brought up at in the aftermath of a cyclist being killed. My friend, uh, my best friend who was killed, the, the New York Times wrote about the fact that he wasn't wearing a helmet. He was also hit by a 3,000 pound car going 60 miles an hour. There's no planet where a helmet would have prevented, you know, would have helped him in that case. Um, but what the bicycle helmet narrative does there is, is it focuses in on the blame and responsibility of the last person who maybe made a mistake focuses in on whether or not Eric wore a helmet, even though a helmet would have not protected him, rather than saying, like, how many other people were killed on this street in the same way? Could this still happen again? 
how could we prevent this harm? So in these ways, the, these rules and laws don't look at the system. They look at the person and they make the problem about one misbehaving person and not protecting people when they inevitably make a mistake. Uh, one thing you see with fall prevention rules, which um, are required um, by um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid of hospitals, and most of the time when people fall in the hospital, they're older, and there was a rule created where um, Medicaid would no longer pay the hospital for the medical care of a person who fell at the hospital. And this led hospitals to create extremely intense internal rules with nurses about preventing falls. And, you know, so patients were put in alarms and there were side rails put in and it was just drilled into nurses. No one can fall on your watch. But with older people in the hospital, something that happens is that their muscles deteriorate very quickly in just a few days. And so someone would come into the hospital and they would be immobilized to prevent them from falling in the hospital. And in that time, their strength and their ability to take care of themselves would deteriorate. And then they would go home from the hospital and then they would fall because their limits had been, um, you know, because they had been limited in their movement to such a degree that they deteriorated in their ability. And so these are two different examples um, that focus on how the problem of an accident is this one person misbehaving rather than protecting people when they inevitably make a mistake. Um, so, you know, uh, limiting the speed of cars, um, and guarding places from cars where people are walking and biking is one way you could protect people from a mistake made by a cyclist or a pedestrian or the nut behind the wheel. It shouldn't matter. Um, and, you know, uh, banisters and guardrails and full accessibility in all of our buildings is a way you could protect people from making the mistake of falling. But what these laws and rules do is focus in on people making the mistake, not preventing the harm. And so then we miss all these opportunities to cushion the blow. That story to me is just amazing um, about immobilizing old people in hospitals and, and those unintended consequences. It's just there are many unintended consequences that uh, that really struck me in your book. So. Just another story I wanted to touch on, because I bet many people, at least people of a certain generation, would have heard of this story. And it touches on something that you mentioned before, which was tort reform. And that's the story of the McDonald's hot coffee lawsuit. Uh, would you explain the, the real story, what actually happened there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this, uh, the McDonald's coffee case is quite a famous one. Um, and I don't know if we all really know the real story, but this is it. An older woman was sitting in a car. Her son brought food from McDonald's. She got a cup of coffee. The coffee spilled in her lap. She had massive third degree burns over a large percentage of her body. Uh, she was horribly injured. She spent um, weeks in the hospital and months recovering. Afterwards, her family asked McDonald's to pay her medical bills, which was... Uh, in the range of 10 or $20,000. And McDonald's said no. And so this woman's family sued McDonald's in a tort case. And here's one of the really valuable ways that tort cases um, appear, which is when they sued McDonald's in discovery, 
they learned that there were hundreds of burn cases just like theirs. So tort cases reveal information to the public that wouldn't otherwise be known. And there were hundreds of stories just like this woman's. Um, they also learned that McDonald's coffee was heated well over the industry average. Um, and that was another thing that came out in the tort case. Now, the jury in this tort case awarded this woman uh, a multi-million dollar settlement for her injuries. And that's probably the story you know about the McDonald's coffee case. A woman sues, spills coffee, gets $3 million. That was the narrative. Now, in truth, McDonald's appealed the case and they settled for a lesser unknown amount. But the story that was told was this out of control jury just throwing money at people for their, for their mistakes, like spilling coffee. Um, and I want to be very clear here. So tort reform sounds like a good thing. And so I want to be very clear that tort reform is bad. It is an infringement on our right as individuals to sue corporations that hurt people. Tort reform only hurts us. Um, but one thing that the proponents of tort reform, and let's be clear, the proponents of tort reform are corporations and insurance companies. The proponents of tort reform take cases like the McDonald's coffee case and elevate it to the level of popular culture and mock it as an argument that we don't need tort reform or that tort reform, you know, is somehow harmful to us all. Um, but what it comes down to is tort reform is a way to reveal valuable information about um, corporate negligence. It's a way to find patterns in corporate negligence, um, like hundreds of burn cases. Um, and it's a way to uh, provide victims with, recomp uh, with compensation, but it's also a way to make accidents cost. You know, we talked about this in the beginning that, you know, one of the reasons that accidents are profitable to corporations is that they don't cost money. And so tort reform has made it really difficult for uh, we, the people, to make accidents cost money for corporations um, the way that the McDonald's coffee case did. And that's a real shame because tort, tort cases have shown a huge ability to prevent accidental death. Um, like in the late 80s, there was a, uh, and in the early 90s, there was a large number of accidental deaths by anesthesia people accidentally dying under anesthesia and, and you know, uh, tens of thousands of these a year. And then there were a series of high profile, large, expensive tort cases. And that caused uh, the anesthesia industry to reform the practices of anesthesiologists to limit their work hours, to require rest periods, and deaths under anesthesia plummeted. That's what tort can do. It puts a cost on accidents that force corporations to consider the ways that they're putting people at risk and then reform those practices to protect us. And so tort reform has been really horrible for protecting us from accidental death um, and leaving us in a position where suing is so difficult that we're all exposed to more risk. And I think those are... Um a few things there from that story that most people probably would have no idea of because um, you, you do, as a member of the public, tend to get the message that the corporations uh, would like you to get. And that makes me think, uh, 
at heart, really, this book is about power. Uh, it seems so to me. And you mentioned Ralph Nader. Of course, he was very important uh, in terms of, of going after corporations. And he has, he doesn't like the word accident either. He proposes a term, corporate homicide. And I wonder how does that term encapsulate the relationship between the powerful and those who lack power? Look, everything we need to know about accidental death is that it comes from injury. And injury is not cancer. It's not COVID. We understand injury. It is, it is simple. It is a matter of um, energy that is stronger than the human body impacting the human body. Um, which is to say that preventing accidental death is just a matter of reducing our exposure to harmful energy, um, to protecting us from inner injury. And again, we know how to do this. I mean, sprinklers in apartment buildings prevent injury. Airbags prevent injury. Banisters prevent injury. Having EMTs on call that can get to you quickly is a way to prevent injury turning into death. And so when it comes to injury, it's simple, which tells us that whether or not we live or die is decided by our exposure to these risks or our lack thereof, uh, you know, protections. So if you have less power, you are more exposed. Uh, and it is more in the hands of the government and corporations to decide whether or not you live or die. For example, if your house has sprinklers, if your workplace has banisters, if your car has automatic emergency braking, if an EMT is nearby, your injury is less likely to become an accidental death. Um, those conditions, um, whether or not your conditions are dangerous is decided by your power, um, by your race, by your wealth, that dictates your survival. And it's no coincidence, I think, that after an accident, the less power you have, the more likely your death is to be chalked up to an accident. Uh, for your death to be something about which we say, whoops, nothing to be done. It's sobering, <laughs> sobering thought, um, looking at the, the relationship uh, of the powerful to the, the not so powerful and all that needs to be done to change that balance. Uh, so I'm wondering, Jesse, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but I would like to ask, what do you hope will come out of writing this book that obviously uh, was such a, a passion for you? I hope that the systems that we have to protect us are revived, first and foremost. We have a regulatory system and it has been defanged and captured by corporations at every turn. We need to take it back. We have a system of tort law that has been reformed to death, and we need to take it back. But I also hope that for individuals, that we can start to resist this narrative that accidental, is, accidental death is the fault of the last person who made a mistake. And start to, when we hear that word accident, when someone tells us it was an accident, start to ask real questions about it. Let that be a point of inquiry from which we say, oh, was it an accident? Has it happened before? Could it happen again? What can we do to prevent that? And I think if we start to ask those questions, whether or not you still use the word, 
will have taken a leap forward in terms of protecting people from these deeply preventable harms. Well, here's hoping. Um, and Jesse, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, everyone, the book is There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price, published uh, this year, this month, by Simon & Schuster. And it's um, a very eye-opening read. And Jesse, thanks again for coming on to speak with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.